Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Original nigga. Can you 
And, of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. But even, you know, before you get into serious discussion around institution building, there are certain realities in the world which people must be cognizant of. And, and namely, when we talk about economics and we talk about the, the enormous amount of control Western states uh, implement in terms of controlling the economic agenda, I think it's important that we understand that we have Western nations and Western institutions, specifically Western organizations, working together to achieve a desired impact. Uh, one of the things from the World Economic Forum, they've been talking a great deal lately about the Great Reset. Now, the Great Reset is something more than a, than a, a term in terms of preserving uh, imperialism. And so when we think about the this, this, this desire in terms of extending imperialism, then we can't dismiss the role America played in terms of facilitating imperialism throughout the world. So in event, I, I, you know, I think it's important that people understand the history. So I brought, wrote a brief history in terms of the correlation between the um, World Economic Forum and America's uh, political and economic policies. In event, Brother Africa, check this out. Western intervention in economic affairs in the world have played a decisive role in shaping the global economy post-early 20th century. Starting with a concept known as military Keynesianism, coined after John Maynard Keyes, was an economic policy predicated on military spending to boost the economy. The idea being spending on military projects would trickle down providing employment thereby stimulating the economy. As a fiscal stimulus, military application had less relevance than building up the economy. Now, war as a fact of life could be monetized, providing some benefits to the citizenry, thereby creating some good from a horrible situation. Unfortunately, the idea of monetizing war to make profit proved to be an irresistible temptation. In the 1950s, both the U.S. Defense Department and the U.S. State Department put together a policy called National Security Conference 68. This policy extended military budgets and increased military aid to U.S. allies. This aid was not altruistic, but it's a strategy to improve the U.S. economy. Because the dollar was the reserve currency established under the Bretton Woods Accords in 1944, strategy dictated increasing quantity of dollars in circulation would greatly increase the U.S. economy. Since much of the trade and purchase of oil was conducted in dollars, the, regions, the reasoning was economically sound. Building the U.S. empire needed more than assurances other states would abide by economic policy solely of economic benefits to the U.S. What was needed were institutions that would reinforce economic mandates while providing some legitimacy. One such institution was the IMF, International Monetary Fund, World Bank Nexus. Both established under the Bretton Woods Accords would determine which state, which state economies would benefit from trade and which economies would serve as colonies for Western economic interest. This line of thinking was evident in assessing the participants invited to attend the conference. Of the 44 attendants at the Bretton Woods Conference, only three African states were invited. Invited were Egypt, Ethiopia, and apartheid South Africa. Implications for most African states were clear. From devaluing African currencies, making them worthless, to absorbing interest rates, to blocking investments to Africa, emphasis were established affirming Africa's colonial status. To Bretton Woods, national policy was implemented to ensure wealthy elite nationals would not only have access to capital, but to determine the economic state of the U.S. In 1913, six oligarchs met at Jekyll Island to reform the U.S. banking system. Sensing an opportunity to make big money from the U.S. government when it borrows, 
money to conduct affairs of the state, these individuals realized interest rates alone from the U.S. government would make them fantastically wealthy. In order to pull off this heist, they circulated propaganda opposing the establishment of a Federal Reserve system. This rules worked because the masses felt if the oligarchs opposed the plan, then it was beneficial to the masses. The deceptions did not end there. A bill put before Congress stipulated the Federal Reserve will not unilaterally have the power to dictate to government how money is used. During a congressional break, that stipulation was removed, corroborating what Alan Greenspan, the former federal chairman, disclosed to journalists. And that is, nobody tells the Federal Reserve what to do. We are totally independent. Political maneuvering was so successful, it inspired international organizations to sing its praise and pick up the banner of neoliberalism or making the wealthy more wealthy. One such organization, the World Economic Forum, was established in 1987, specifically to promote American form of business and management style. Of course, in adopting the American business model or forward thinking, as they, say, they would say, in, the philo- in, in its philosophy, dependence on foreign government, resulted in debt expansion of the global economy. Level of global debt has increased significantly since 2010 and currently stands at $257 trillion. This high level of debt compounds or diminishes economic growth because it inhibits investments leading to sharp downturns in the business environment, both internationally and among individual states. Now, the World Economic Forum, originally called the European Management Forum, consisted of over 400 Europe's top CEOs. The importance of this organization has increased immensely. This influence is widely felt. In fact, the World Economic Forum was effective in getting Nelson Mandela to embrace market-based economic reforms, embracing foreign investments as a solution to South Africa's economy. Oddly, investments to fall of apartheid would suggest the World Economic Forum's recommendations were disingenuous. The World Economic Forum's true motivations lies in what has been coined the Great Reset. The Great Reset is an intensification of neoliberal policy that recognizes global economic decline, and the hardships inflicted on the masses. Now, the hardship or economic hardships inflicted on the masses is a direct result of the diminished capacity of debt to generate economic growth. In other words, capitalism or imperialism generate massive inequality where money does not circulate through the economy, and the oligarchs who control the money supply hoard money for personal enrichment. Now, rather than innovate new ideas to to reinvigorate the global economy, the World Economic Forum rehashes antiquated policies like financialization or making money out of debt, corporate trade agreements, and integration of emerging economic powers into the global economy. Nowhere does World Economic Forum advocate for autonomous states facilitating trade for mutual benefits. What World Economic Forum advocates is the purveyor of capitalism, be that the central banks, corporate executives, the IMF, the World Bank, World Trade Organization, and welfare financiers should continue to benefit at the expense of the masses of people, even though they are directly implicated in fomenting so much inequality throughout the world. Of course, the inequality I refer to does adversely impact, impact whole economies. In the case of the U.S., national debt per capita, or amount of debt each citizen owes the government, averages $80,885. Inequality assures salaries decline, and in the U.S., worker salaries have been declining since the 1970s. Naturally, given this reality, the level of debt increases given this particular scenario. Also, in the U.S., the debt-to-GDP ratio, the difference between the government debt and what it produces, stands at 107. This means the government's ability to pay off debt is uncertain, putting 
Now, putting the, now in order for me to put this in context, people have to understand, when we talk about respectable levels of debt, or particularly when we talk about debt-to-GDP ratio, the, the, the appropriate number would be 60 or less. So the U.S. is 107, which means that paying this debt becomes extremely problematic for the government. This disparity is directly related to federal government policy that provides free money to the oligarchs via qualitative easing and government tax policy, giving large tax breaks to oligarchs. As the oligarchs' assets increase in value, the ability for government to collect taxes constrained by policy that makes tax collection from oligarchs impossible. Both policies, qualitative easing and neoliberal tax breaks, uh, deny working people access to money, which is counterproductive, since putting money in the hands of poor people ensures a stimulus effect because poor people can't afford to save. I think this is important to understand that if you want the economy to expand, then you make sure poor people have access to money. Uh, people, poor people don't have access to surplus funds, and so which means sort of, so the availability of funds they do have goes to paying bills that must be paid, and so therefore the money is forced into the economy, which compels, uh, uh, which actually compels poor people to spend it, and in spending it, it actually uh, stimulates the economy. So one has, has to ask himself, any any policies that keeps money out of the hands of poor people, you got to ask, what is the real incentive? What is the uh, motivation in terms of doing such thing? Since such, since doing such a thing undermines the very economy that you so-called uh, in trying to, uh, to uplift. Now, if this be the case, why does the World Economic Forum embrace policy that undermines economics both nationally and internationally? Also, I'm, I should add, why did George Herbert Walker Bush advocate for a new world order while simultaneously advocating for a devolution as a way to ensure oligarchs' interests are protected? Simple. Both the World Economic Forum and heads of state like Bush understand they represent the same interest, which is corporate and wealthy interests worldwide, which is precisely the intent of the Great Reset. And I close that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Africa and Brother Haki. Right now, we would like to welcome Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Can you hear me clearly now? Yes, we can. Loud and clear. All right. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that my faith tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. You say ERA, yes, Equal Rights Amendment, yes, because women hold up half the sky. And um, the thing that Marx brought to the table was political economy. That is, that it's not a relationship between people and things, but it's a relationship between people and people. And that, you know, we have to understand that and keep politics in command. Um I'd like to say thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll make a transition to Sister Eleanor. We'd like to welcome her to Africa on the Move. Sister Eleanor. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for listening in. And thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing my participation on uh, Africa on the Move. Um, I'd like to say that in following up with what Brother Hakeem had talked about, he talked about stimulating the economy requires poor people to spend money. 
because the rich, as we saw with uh, Jeff Bezos paying zero taxes in 2014, paying, I believe, zero taxes in 2020, uh, this is uh, an outrage. However, uh, the city of St. Paul did something quite phenomenal. They have uh, set up past legislation that is allowing 100 persons, uh, working class people, poor people, working class people, to receive a uh, uh, supplemental check each month. And the intent of those funds is to create and stimulate the local economy in St. Paul. The other thing that they've done that's very interesting there, if you are buying a piece of real estate, uh, you are the seller is required to do full disclosure on the condition of the building structurally, any debt, any loans, uh, and the uh, information concerning financing. And uh, it, it, it really has a lot of consumer protection. So you won't see atrocities that, like we saw in Florida this summer where people are purchasing condominiums, where you have condominium boards of directors that are trying their best, but the only qualifications they have is that they're owners. And that, that, that's not a qualification unto itself. So we see that there are uh, efforts in uh, different municipalities to stimulate the economy by allowing greater participation, utilizing the fact that poor people have to spend everything on necessity, trying to create a surplus so that they can do increased spending on consumer goods. Since the U.S. economy is, as Brother Akeem said, is a consumer economy, so it depends entirely on, on the sales of goods and services. So, um, that's very interesting. And for everyone who talks about supporting uh, reproductive rights and these things, it's time for them to stand up, uh, get involved, write letters, join organizations. Because for the last 20 or 30 years, uh, the rights of uh, Roe versus Wade, those rights have been being eroded so that it has become a class issue. Poor women who go to public clinics who rely on public health care, on Obamacare, they are not in many states allowed to have abortions or have any control over their reproductive rights or limited control. And as we see with what's happened in Texas and is happening uh, uh, right now, that women are having to travel out of state in order to exercise their reproductive uh, rights. But I think that what that tells us all, that it's time for men to stand up and protect women and children and to be responsible in their activities, uh, making sure that they use condoms, that we don't have these unwanted pregnancies, that we place life, we place lives over sexual pleasure and gratification or physical gratification. I think that is really important and it's something that we really need to move away from. I heard some rap music today. It was so graphic. But I realized that this kind of culture has its basis 
from the 70s and 80s when we didn't have a ERA bill passed, but we had some kind of sexual revolution in this country. But that had a class component, too, and that's the time that we saw in this country something called sexual racism and things like that. But the country has changed so in the last 20 years. What's happening right now in America is that we are having the largest migration of immigrants in American history. And we have seen a phenomenal cultural change, and the census data is phenomenal. We are a new country of new people from many backgrounds and extremely diverse. For the America I grew up in, it was white, black, red, and Chicano. Now America is many things. It has a huge Central American population. It has the uh, diversity lottery, so we have many African brothers and sisters from across the continent joining us. So it is time for us to unite. It's time for us to reorganize and strengthen our labor unions and to organize, as is the theme and purpose of this show. So thank you all for all the work you do, and thank you for allowing my participation this evening. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to have our brother from West Africa. He's the president of the African Community Network. He has a very upcoming, important event that we would like to encourage all of our listening audience to spread the word and come out. We're going to talk about this particularly important event, particularly for Africa and African people, when we come back on that break. This is... Africa on the moon. Reflection in this, you're an African. 
Um, again, we thank Brother Lee for giving us the opportunity to join and to share this message with all our brothers and sisters um, on the call. Uh, Brother Lee, that's what I want to share today. And I get, again, thank you very much for everything you do for our community. And everybody who spoke before me, I listened to very carefully. They're very on point. My brother, yes, can you give us a contact number for people who might want to uh, give, for people who might want to participate, talk about how they can participate, and how can they get in touch with your organization, support your organization? Okay, we have a website, and it's going to be acn dash ba at dot va dot com acn dash va dot com so if you go there there is uh you know you can uh, uh get some information there and we have a facebook page also you can look into and uh i will give a number for for the registration person the one who's handling the registration if you still because i know we're still uh, taking some, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, vendors is still open, but you can always try. Uh, his name is Michael Asante. He's from uh, Jamaica, and uh, he's the one who's really uh, in charge of the vendors list and things like that. Uh, let me give you the number. Um, that way anybody can uh, call him to get some more information about the spot. But if not, if the, the festival is free. Anybody should come. It's free. So his number is 804 3702430 again 8043702430 and we have you know performers we have dancers we have uh, drummers I and mean, everything you want to see which is in africa we're trying to bring it here for people who don't who don't get the chance to travel to africa in terms of the logistics, my brother, you said it would be September the 18th at Darkwood Dale in Richmond, Virginia. What are the hours? Uh, 2 to 7. It's going to be from 2 to 7. 2 to 7, September the 18th, Darkwood Dale in Richmond, Virginia. Come on out to the Afrofest. All right, my brother, we'd like to thank you. and like to thank you and your organization for the work that you're doing in the region. And uh, anytime when you have something going on, make sure you keep us informed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brother Lee. Always a pleasure to be here. All right, brothers and sisters, you heard it. Other next weekend show weekend. Come on out to the Afrofest. Afrofest in Richmond, Virginia, Darkwood Dale Park. It's from 2 to 7 p.m. Come on out. Last unite. Africa must unite. So as we continue on this segment, what's going on in your world in the community, we can bring in Brother Haki. Ask Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and community? Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, I, I gotta tell you, you know, um, you know, often, you know, we you know, we're quite aware of this these incidences where cops continue to kill African people. And uh, you know, so there's nothing unusual about that that happens with great frequency. But this particular case uh of a young brother out of Georgia, uh, who who was killed by a couple of uh I don't know what you would call them, uh, perhaps uh, ventilanges, I'm not sure. But in any event, this young brother who lost his life uh, in Georgia is a very sort of very interesting case because Georgia has a very interesting history, particularly when it comes to uh, the kind of uh, corruption that's, that's so endemic you know, to the, to, you know, the, uh, the, the judiciary or the uh, criminal justice system there in uh, Georgia. 
So in events, so I, I, I thought I'd write this, this piece about in terms of um, Amar Arbery, his case, and the implications in terms of just how the system functions, in terms of why it's so difficult. Uh, it's going to be extremely difficult for, for achieving justice, you know, in this particular case, simply because of the machinery uh, in place, uh, which, is, which is not only corrupt to the bone, but geared toward ensuring that the dispensing of justice, it becomes uh, very, very problematic. But in event, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, the politics of Ahmaud Avery's case. Now, in the U.S., there are approximately 2,400 prosecutors at the state and local level. The intricate nature of inter- interpreting laws often enshrined vast areas of gray, which complicates the intent of law. This phenomenon is exacerbated by federal law that essentially leaves the interpretation of state and local prosec- prosecutors whose states often supersede constitutional requirements. In the case of states with a high propensity for corruption, interpretation of law often manifests itself in a way that's partial or discriminatory in the application of law. Federal law, which reinforces the spirit of law by broadly defining intent, in essence provides cover for bad actors in the, in the state's judicial system. In the case of absolute immunity for prosecutors, providing their own job, acting in bad faith or knowingly breaking the law is not punishable. Going a step further, federal law stipulates Civic recompense or civil liability for prosecutors is not an option in many cases. The Supreme Court recently ruled civil suit plaintiffs must show that misconduct of a public official arose from government policy or custom. An impossible task because no government official or prosecutor is going to espouse wrongdoing openly or in, or in policy. In the case of Ahmad Avery, a Georgia native of African descent, he was killed by two white males, a father-son combination, for jogging in the wrong section of town. Pursuing Mr. Avery in a pickup truck, upon confronting him, the son, Travis McMichael, shot Mr. Avery point-blank with a shotgun. A third assailant recorded the event on his, cell, on his phone camera, eliminating any need for speculation. The father, Greg McMichael, a former police officer, formerly working for the top prosecutor, called the prosecutor to, to disclose the killing was in self-defense. The prosecutor, Jackie Johnson, proceeded to whitewash the crime by, abstract, by obstructing the investigation. In so doing, she was able to forestall an investigation of the killing. Eventually, protests around Avery's death formulated heat, compelling the prosecutor to recuse herself, giving the case to a subordinate, George Barnhill. Ms. Johnson disclosed to Mr. Barnhill she had previously spoken with police about the case. Apparently, Mr. Barnhill took the disclosure to mean he was to continue the cover-up. That he did. Sending a letter to the police, he stated the killings were justified. With community indignation growing, he eventually recused himself, prompted outside investigations of the killing. The three corpses were eventually arrested and charged. Prosecutor Jackie Johnson, no longer in the prosecutor's office because she lost the election, was indicted, booked, and released on her own recognizance. No bail set at all. Interestingly enough, the former prosecutor was not charged with obstruction of justice, which is more comprehensive, but obstruction of the groundwork has been set for in an acquittal. Given no bail amount set and the dubious, dubious nature of charging of the prosecutor uh, with conversing with police will result in a minimum or no punishment at all. The reality is questioning the dispensation of justice in the U.S. is justified, but particularly so for a state like Georgia. The Center for Public Integrity ranks Georgia near the top in terms of corruption among U.S. states and its territories. Its resistance to ethics reform is well documented. Historically, a democratic state, resistance to ethic, ethic reforms, normally associated with Republicans, was a recurring feature of democratic leadership. 
when the Republican leadership assumed power around 2004, the position toward the ethic reform did not change. That is, it remained a, a position best left un, unaddressed. The transparency many aspire to in Georgia continues to be elusive. A Georgia Judicial Qualification Commission powers are undermined with the, with the decisions made to eliminate corrupt judges is second-guessed by state Supreme Court, whose interest does not always square with lower courts or societal interests. Certainly, one of the biggest incentives for public officials to engage in corruption is knowing little chance or repercussions exist through the court system. This unfortunate aspect of systematic corruption is not relegated solely on the state level. Federal law plays a part in states like Georgia that are empowered to violate the rights of citizens, particularly poor citizens who are perceived as powerless by elected officials. The one concept that does more to validate state corruption is federalism. Enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, federalism says states have a right to conduct their own affairs free of government uh, intrusion, which negates the very principle of democracy. If federalism connotation connotes state power is the only legitimate expression of power, then how does that square with voter power, people power, or union power? If state power is absolute, no checks and balances from the federal government, state officials in essence are free to make up laws or policies as they see fit. No precedent needs to be established. Now, like the feudal king and queen, all things exist because I said so, and this is problematic. Little wonder about 20,000 state and local public officials are convicted of corruption any given year in the U.S. While 20,000 people seem like a lot of people, when you factor in an adult population in the U.S. of 259 million people, of which 519,682 are elected officials in the U.S., 20,000 people is minuscule. This suggests the overwhelming number of people involved in corruption won't end up in court, and if they are, the most likely they are acquitted. This belief is supplemented by legal statute which defines corruption differently. Not all corruption is classified as corruption. Prosecutors making false statements or obstructing of justice is not considered corruption, but non-corruption offenses. Under the statute, what the prosecutor did to Armand Avery's case was not corruption, but business as usual for rulers of state power. The outcome of Jackie Johnson's case is going to be a very interesting one. And I'll close that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we're going to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Brother Moses. Well, it's been another interesting week. Um, the president has mandated vaccines. Uh, I support that mandate. Um, uh, I think, you know, we have a serious problem here with this, this pandemic and that we have to take serious steps um, other than that, I think, um, you know, I think, you know, I've been having a problem with people questioning my integrity and my my morality and my ethics. And uh, I think, you know, that, that um, I don't know how to just resolve that, um, to continue the, the – sometimes you have different of opinions and two different positions, and, and it's no misunderstanding. It's just two concrete different positions, and so you have to recognize that uh, you have to move on uh, when you can't resolve things. Uh, I think criticism and self-criticism is important, that people, we should criticize ourselves and, and look objectively at, at the situation and see if we have any faults in ourselves. Uh, I think, you know, Right now, it's it's um, it's a very trying time uh, um, 
with this epidemic, uh, mass social distancing and washing the hands uh, is still the order of the day. And I, I just think um, we have to we have to come together in organization. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. My brother Moses, we thank you. We're going to go do Sister Noah. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Sister Eleanor. Well, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful time in that uh, Americans have to reflect on the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 and uh, wonder how we uh, will move forward collectively and how drastically the country has changed in those 20 years. The demographic composition of the country has drastically changed. We have a, a huge population of youth that were either infants or not born uh, in 2021. But more importantly, we have millions of people that were not in the United States or were new arrivals at that time. So this is uh, really a time for building community and building unity. And um, when, uh, when, when, when we look at the issue of uh, voters' rights and the suppression laws that are being that have been passed in 18 states, and we see that same state, for example, Texas, doing radical things. We have to, as I said last week, stand up where the workers are standing up, as they are in Harrison County, Texas, where they were able to gain some workers' rights. And the folks up in uh, 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 Colorado and around the nation where we see some, some movement, we also need to work and, and support the workers of Amazon uh, uh, when they go back to reorganize because uh, Amazon's corporation, Jeff Bezos, and his, his elite staff definitely interfered in uh, uh, the organizing that went on. And uh, the, the few court fines are nothing. What's really important is having the people go back to the the ballot box and organize their union and continue to fight, not to give up. And uh, that's essential. I still stand, as I always say, with the solidarity with the Palestinian people as they suffer under this horrible, horrible uh, apartheid under Zionism where only people of Jewish heritage can vote and have basic civil rights. Um, we look at China right now, and Wunang, you see so many ghost castles, as Brother Akeem were talking about, the capitalists. Well, the 20 wealthiest people on planet Earth, nine are in the United States, one's in India, and 10 are in China. So we see China emulating the uh, development practices of the United States, where they're having these condominiums built that are never completed and the and the people who invest in them are lost, left without a home. And the they have to go to, in Wunang, there are 11 representatives. For example, if you're in the District of Columbia, there are eight council persons for, for this 
three-quarters of a million people. In Wunong, there are 11 for 11 million people. Well, I stand in solidarity with those workers in that they are suffering uh, with housing insecurity uh, because of the rapid industrialization of China that has been fostered by U.S. capitalism. Every product that you see, that you pick up today, and you look on the bottom of a plate, made in China. You pick up a cup, made in China. We built this monster, and it's now the largest economy in the world with the fastest-growing GMP. But we need to stand in solidarity internationally with all workers and fight totalitarianist governments wherever they are. Just like the people are fighting back against uh, the 18 states and this United States, as Brother Hakeem said, this is a republic. So that's why people have to organize where they are. And, and, and the court case that's going on in Atlanta is in the, when it goes above the local courts, it's going to be a part of the 11th Circuit. The United States has 13 circuits. And Georgia is a part of the 11th Circuit. I'm sorry I'm not able to tell you all the states that are a part of the 11th Circuit. I can tell you the 13th Circuit is one municipality. It's the District of Columbia. So you can make laws that change the whole United States in this small capital city. But um, I also stand in solidarity with the Cuban people uh, in their struggle for uh, energy as well as medical supplies and uh, uh, their effort to uh, vaccinate their people and assist other people such as the folks in uh, Vietnam and Honduras with uh, receiving vaccines. And I continue to support the people of Afghanistan as they struggle to uh, develop a democratic government and women and children uh, struggle to maintain the rights that they have obtained in the last 20 years to education and the right to work. And uh, right now we saw this week that the Taliban had told women to go home from school until uh, they were able to set up classes for women. Well, how's that going to work? If the woman is a professor, where are the men going to go uh, if she's the one teaching the class? So. I stand in solidarity with women uh, nationally. I believe that housing, health care, education, access to clean air and water is a basic human right. And the biggest struggle that we're facing right now is global warming and the necessity for all of us, in particular China, the United States, and India to lead by example and reduce our carbon footprint. And the only way we can do this in this country is by developing economic incentives that force the big, the big oil and gas companies to do something else. During this pandemic, they received the largest portion of the stimulus initiative. Their portion was much greater than the persons in the United States received. So we need to think about that. Why are we supporting Exxon and these big, big oil companies? And as you know, uh, they just got some drilling rights to go down into Guyana. Well, that's not going to work. 
we know from the floods, the fires, the climatic conditions that we saw in the last week from from New Orleans, from Louisiana, all the way through the state of, of Massachusetts, that we need to stop now. And each one of us can change our behavior and change our uh, and uh, changing our behavior, we can save Mother Earth. We should learn to love and respect women and children. And in, in reference to Brother Africa, um, uh, Brother Moses talked about his integrity. I would say to him, as a woman who helps lead people, do what's right. If simple things are being asked of you, do it. Don't keep waffling. No, everyone knows what they're supposed to do. If you find that you're leaving a job or, for example, leaving a job, return the keys and the password to the employer. Move on. Stop trying to hurt and abuse people and, just as, as, and move on. It's very easy. No one has to question anyone's integrity when we take decisive action that are sensitive to the needs of other people and respectful of them and their concerns. All we have to do is be respectful of our neighbors. God asks us to be loving, kind, patient, respectful. Try practicing some of those things and you'll see that life is much easier than you can imagine. So I stand united with the people in, in, in struggle on this planet with all African people. As you said, Brother Africa, whether they're in Honduras, whether they're in Belize, whether they're in Brazil, whether they're in Peru, they are Africans. And I stand in unity with the Africans on the continent and in the diaspora whether they're in India, hey, when you do that DNA and if something comes up, just be happy and proud that you're an African. So with that, I say thank you once again for this wonderful forum. And in unity, I stand and with love and respect for the panelists and for my community and for Mother Earth and all her citizens. Thank you. Thank you, my sisters and listening audience. This is going to move. We're under the segment, What's Going On in Your World Community? you have something you'd like to share, that, uh, some of the things you might have heard, or what's going on in your world and your community, feel free to call 232-679-0841. Hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Now, to all my panelists and analysts, I have something I want to raise with you today. And I'd like to get your feedback. Um, you know, Bob Marley once stated, uh, we need to release ourselves from uh, mental slavery. You know, release ourselves from mental slavery. When I thought of that statement, I was looking at the news the other day, and there's a, um, a confused African in California uh, running for governor. Uh, what's the name? Larry... Um, well, Larry Langley, he used to be a TV host. He's an African Republican running for governor. Can't think of Larry Langley. But anyway, this brother made a statement in reference to 
uh, reparation. He stated that Larry Adler, that's his name, Larry Adler, he stated that Africans need to be careful about repara- reparations because we're going to be honestly across the board that the slave owners are due to reparations because at the time when slavery was legal and by creating a law of freeing the slaves, they lost their property. So by losing their property, that qualified them for reparations. Brother Haki, what do you think of that logic or think of that position? What's your response to that position, Brother Haki? Oh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm not surprised that things come to this guy's face. I mean, this guy's opportunistic as hell, so he'll say anything that would appease the right wing. So he saw things about the accumulation of power, and he'll say anything regardless of how ridiculous or how inane it is. So I'm not surprised he would say something like that. But the whole point is that, you know, when you talk about slavery, it's, it's, it's very difficult to put slavery on par with the, with the property rights, you know, of, of the, of the um, slaveholders. Uh, human beings would never, objectively speaking, property in the first place. So the question is that, you know, when you start equating human beings to a legitimate kind of slavery, what he's saying is that the slavery of African people, the slavery of our ancestors, was legit. And there's never any legitimacy in terms of enslaving one another. And that's not to say that historically slavery hasn't existed among societies. It's simply a question in terms of how slaves are treated. The kind of slavery, the notoriety of slavery practice in America was totally different than the rest of the world. This kind was much more demeaning, dehumanizing. Uh, when it's subjugated, it didn't just subjugate the, the physical person, but it subjugated their mind and soul. So the, the, so the pervasiveness uh, of the uh, of the who of found themselves enslaved was much deeper. So there was no correlation between you know uh, you know the slave holders. Uh, who slave, own, slave owners who did absolutely nothing other than to abuse other human beings to so put them on the, put them on its own par in terms of comparison. I find it so idiotic. It's not even worthy of really responding to. But again, brother Africa, this is this is what the, this is what this guy does. I mean, he's been doing this for a long, long time. He's been saying the most outrageous things in order for him to to attract investors. You say outrageous things, and of course, um, of course, uh, you know uh, those those right wing forces in the, in the society will reward you for saying stupid things because it's in their interest for you to say stupid things because that way they can effectively divide the African community, which is precisely what they want to do. So guys like this Larry Aldo doesn't have a problem in terms of doing that as long as you pay him. So he's not different than the same uh, uh, enslaved African who sided with the, with the slave ho- slaveholders uh, during the time of enslavement in, in this country. So clearly, you know, this guy is just, um, you know, he's just, uh, he's just a, one, of your, one of your more traditional, you know, opportunists who will stay and do anything in terms of you know money and power? But anything, let me say. But having said that, brother Africa, let me respond back to something Sister Eleanor said. Cause it's important because I'm hearing what she's saying, and uh, it's important that she understand the difference between what's going on in China and what's going on in America. Number one, the number of the number of capitalists in China is actually higher than the number of capitalists in America. I think it's 12, 13 uh, of billionaires in China. China has the most billionaires in the world. That's the first thing. But in terms of your treatment in terms of these billionaires, it's totally different. China has a population of over 2 billion people, and so the struggle for China is to develop and also feed its people. Well, the course it takes, to, to a large extent, to determine upon the kind, of, the kind of objective realities or the geopolitics of Western states in terms of how China should go about creating you know, uh, uh, a, a society which its people are, are provided for. And when we talk about geopolitics, it's important we understand that Western states work uh, um, under specific guidelines 
based upon what country they're looking at in terms of how they're going to oppress that nation. So as a consequence, when you look at Africa, the way they explore Africans in North Africa is totally different than the way they explore Africans in Southern Pride, which is totally different than the way they explore Africans in Eastern Africa, which is totally different than the way they explore Africans West, in West Africa or even Central Africa. So to have these, so to have these strategic guidelines in which they follow in terms of bringing about the exploitation, China's no different. So they seek to undermine China's development. So China understands that. So China got the dual obligation of not only protecting its borders, but also providing for its people. Well, the course that it takes makes sense, because when you stop and think about it, when you remember the World Trade Organization, the U.S. was in the front, the leading, the leading power of pushing China to be part of the World Trade Organization. By the United States pushing China to be part of the World Trade Organization, what it, what it did was to provide China with all, of the, uh, with all of the financing or the capital it needs in terms of its advancement. That's not to negate the, the achievement of the, of the Chinese, Chinese uh, political commi- uh, central committee. They're doing a massive job in terms of, you know, uh, you know uh, alleviating you know, the situation where, uh, 80%, you know, where 80% of the people of poverty has been eradicated. That's amazing in a relatively short period of time. So I'm not taking away for their the, the achievements. That's not what I'm doing. But what I'm saying is that given that reality in terms of if, if when, when America gave that, that America provided China with an opportunity for, in terms of development, it makes sense for China to follow that course of development. Here's the difference. China is not, China is not capitalist to the extent that they are willing to allow their billionaires to run their society. In America, billionaires run this. In China, you can become a billionaire because you're not going to stop that. No matter what country in the world, you're always going to find billionaires. It's not, it's not, unique, to capital, it's not unique to capitalism. It's just in terms of how human society evolves. You're always going to have some people who are, for whatever reason, uh, much more cunning, much more, much more uh, productive, much more whatever in terms of achieving material gain. That's a given. It doesn't matter whether you're from a social society, a capitalist society, or whatever kind of society you talk about. So let's be clear. You, 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 see, we're not, see, we're not, we're not, see, we're not, we're not saying that capitalism, that America is following, that China is following America's example. That's not what they're doing. They're using what was provided for them in terms of their in terms of their growth and their development. That makes sense. So now that they gave China all this money and all this in terms of again, but what China did was while America provided all this capital in terms for investments, while they closed up, you know, factories and, and they shipped them abroad to China, what China would say, listen, if you're gonna operate in China, what you're gonna do, we're gonna have some ownership a major ownership in these businesses, which makes sense. All right? So not only are we going, we're going to conduct business, but at the, in the process, we're going to learn a lot about in terms of business, doing business internationally in terms of, you know, uh, what works and what doesn't work. It makes sense. It doesn't mean that they're aspiring, they're aspiring to you know, be just like the United States. That's not what they're doing at all. Uh, also, uh, one of the things you, t- you talk about, you know, um, you, know uh, you talk about, you're, you alluded to the Uyghurs. Well, the problem with the Uyghurs is just be careful about everything you read in society. You know, we keep talking every week about the role of propaganda in American society. 90% of the bullshit that you hear is propaganda. They're not going to tell you the real deal. This notion in terms of the Uyghurs are being imprisoned in, in and they, they're in horrible uh, economic conditions and blah, 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 blah. Keep in mind, China is a development nation. To the extent that it can, to the extent that it, it, it can develop in terms, the, the development encompasses the needs of all its people. It's not there yet. You got to give them time. The United States has over 300, 300, 300, 400 years in terms of development, and look at the poverty and the suffering that exists in the society. How do you explain in a society which says it's the most wealthy society on the planet, on the planet, on the planet, planet Earth, 
you justify homelessness, unemployment, people not having access to education or shelter. How do you justify that? China says that it's unacceptable, and so they're trying to remedy that. But they have to understand. But you have to understand they have to play with the context of the rules of geopolitics. They're up against an enemy, a vast enemy, not just the United States, but the Western world, who will, who want to see China fall. So China has to be strategic in terms of what it does, in terms of how it goes about doing it. But despite it all, it's been able to do wonderful things, not only in terms of its people in China, but for nations throughout the world. It's direct, direct to, to capitalism. You got to understand, there's a difference. Capitalism will never expose a situation where it's going to actually empower the masses of the people in the world to innovate their economies, to build their economies, to innovate their infrastructures. Capitalism will never allow that. China's doing that. You got to understand. Don't be confused about this nonsense about because somebody got a capital, because somebody got a billionaire in their, in their midst, that's a capitalist society. It doesn't work that way. That's, that, that's not the reality. So anyway, uh, one last thing, and I close with that because I'm, I'm, I'm being long-winded. Uh, last thing I want to respond to: the women in Afghanistan. I understand. I agree with you philosophically. I think that uh, the, the appalling treatment of women, I have a hard problem with that. I mean, I have friends, you know, who are, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, who practice uh, uh, practices, which I have, I'm a, I find objectionable. And, uh, you know, I understand, I understand they do, why they do what they do, but still, from a personal point of view, I find the treatment of women objectionable. That is my position. But having said that, we also have to understand that there are women in Afghanistan who support the Taliban. They want the Taliban, and they support those initiatives initiated by the Taliban. Whether or not we agree with them or disagree with them, it's not the issue. It's for them to decide what is just and right for them, not for us to decide what is just and right for them. So, so all I say, all that to say, be careful about swallowing all this propaganda and all this nonsense about, you know, things or things going around the world, which may not be true at all. So I'm going to close to that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Moses, what do you think about Larry statement about the slave master should be given their reparations as well? What's your thoughts on that, Brother Moses? Given reparations, they haven't earned anything. Uh, uh, they've just amassed capital by uh, primitive methods, uh, primitive accumulation, uh, disrespecting the rights of African people, and they've just amassed their their position on the back of that. And you know, it's backing them that need to reparations, not labor, but that just shows. Sometimes you can have difference of opinion, but just as where people are coming from and where, what their value in order to understand why they take the position they take. And so um, it's a class struggle, and, and this is obviously taking the position of the property owners and the bourgeoisie. You know, and I find there's people who think America is the best thing since cherry pie, and they and they 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 announcing all from that fact that that's where they're coming from. So we have to understand people where people are coming from and where people are going. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, your take on this phenomenon. Well, first of all, I think uh, uh, that that's backwards and that any slaveholder would be sued for their human rights violations and lose. But the reality is that on Tuesday in the state of California, we're seeing something that's real important, and that is that we support the current governor, the, the governor that they're trying
that if this happens in the state of California, it's going to happen everywhere. The people elected a governor. He's been seated. And now there's a movement to recall this governor. And it was a fluke that they got the signatures because of some legislative change that abruptly happened in California. So I would urge anyone that knows anyone in the state of California to get out Tuesday and vote to support the current seating government. And they're always going to be backwards people. And right now, one of our greatest threats sometimes are backwards people like this African in the state of California. It's foolishness, and and it, it, it only reminds the people why it's important to vote on Tuesday and to remember that they've elected a governor and let the world hear that voice that they elected him and they are reaffirming him as the governor of California. No new governor in California. It's an outrage. If they're able to unseat the sitting governor, sitting governor in California, it'll be happening in a, in a state near you. There's a terrible crisis in this country right now. And these backwards laws, voter suppression, as uh, Brother Hakeem was talking about the case in Atlanta, that's the 11th Circuit. We're going to have to see what that 11th Circuit does because there's no way that these men aren't guilty. We've watched the uh, clips from their telephone for a year or more on the television, on the Internet, in the newspaper. It's outrageous. They murdered this man or jogging through a neighborhood that thought he didn't belong. This is an outrage. So as far as the brother goes who doesn't know why reparations are needed in California, we don't need to study fools. We need to make sure that people understand that they are fools, that they are imposters, and that they need to be ignored and that we need to stand solidly together and remember that there was an election in California. Now the goal is to unseat that elected representative. If we allow that to happen in California, we are a foolish people with many troubles ahead in this United States. That means that I can, we just saw it happen in New York. Now we're going to see it in something in California. What is this? And look at Abbott in in Texas. You know, the issue, for example, in Texas, Brother Africa, right now, denial of abortion leads to economic hardship. What happens when a woman is unable due to circumstances to, to, to including the cost of travel, the difficulty in taking time off from work, uh, or securing child care and so many other factors in trying to get an abortion. In, in Texas, they went from doing 66 abortions a day uh, in one clinic in, in, in Fort Worth to down to 11. And women are being forced, ultimately poor women will be forced to cover, uh, to carry their babies to full term. And they're already having struggling with babysitting services right now. What are we doing to women and children? It's outrageous. So Planned Parenthood Center for Choice in Houston are, uh, uh, as of September 1, so many women were ineligible 
for an abortion simply because when they went in for an exam, there was a fetal heartbeat six weeks, and they're denied. And so they're finding themselves in Texas doing more counseling of women, how to go, where to go. But these are volunteers that are helping carry women out of state to other facilities. And and they uh, don't have enough volunteers. They don't have enough support. And this is the worst thing that has happened uh, in terms of abortion rights uh, and point in pregnancy since Roe versus Wade. So we're in a real crisis. And so um, I hope I answered your question on the on the buffoonery in in California. I don't think we should study fools. And I think there should people there should be people in the Black Lives Movement. Uh, progressive socialists, Democrats, everyone that reminds the people of California, we voted for a, pre- uh, a, a governor and we support him, period. Not all these fly-by-night candidates that they have right now. Uh, Vice President Harris has been campaigning heavily in California, and Tuesday will be the day. So I just hope that this this uh, sitting governor remains at the end on Wednesday morning. That's all I can say. And reparations, nothing is owed to uh, slaveholders but shame. There was no right ever on God's earth to hold people as chattel. And as Brother Akeem said, slavery in, in the Americas was unlike slavery anywhere else on earth. So there's no justification, there's no reward, there's only shame. And they, they shame on them, shame on their descendants. When I run into descendants of slaveholders, they're ashamed. They hold their head in shame. They, they thought they were from a righteous family. And the next thing they realize, oh, I, we didn't do anything. Slaves built this and we left them in adject poverty. No, 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 no. The big issue right now is, uh, to me, is just trying to get help for the the women in Texas. And uh, I'm not. Um, I, I I just tell you, the the things I discuss in terms of women's rights, whether they're in the United States or internationally, they are they are well founded. And we really have to decide whether we're standing with women and children or not. There's no waffling, no in-between-the-road. And uh, on this show, we do that. And I am delighted that we do that. But it's a real struggle to stand up because so many people really do waffle. And, uh, again, we have to think about, what's going on with the Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast office and the the difficulties that the director, Dorothy Dixon, is having. And she's almost become some kind of political uh, – she's under political threat because if she technically assists anyone with an abortion in Texas, that's a crime. Her neighbor could could, uh, bring an action against her and be rewarded by the state with $10,000. So the issue in in California is a crisis. Vote for the seating governor. Can anyone tell me the name of the seating governor? I'm sorry, my computer is down. Do you know Brother Africa? 
No, I don't know right off hand, my sister. But, but, but just continue your point. You made your point. The just point continue. Is, the point is, is that this brother is 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 just fostering divisiveness and ignorance, and we cannot waste our time studying that kind of behavior. Life is short, okay. and the struggle is long. Okay, and before we move on to our next segment, I would like to get your final response on what's going on in your world community is that this U.S. capitalist system and U.S. government seem to uh, confirm Public Kwame Jure's statement in which he stated that this society, this capitalist system, this U.S. government, they don't lie so much time, they lie all the time. As well as it supports a bail out to history um, that when you look at in Nazi Germany and the techniques that Hitler used in his regime, where they believe that if you tell a lie many times, you can get people to start believing that it's the truth. Now, given the fact I made those two particular um, backdrop statements about looking at and critiquing this, this system, I would like to have each one of y'all respond briefly, two to three minutes or more, to this narrative. Or how do y'all view this narrative of 9-11, the event of 9-11, and how to continue to repeat a report that Osama bin Laden was the one responsible for the bombing, and to continue to tell the narrative over and over and over. Your response, Brother Hakeem. Yeah, uh, you, you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. If you if you continue to tell the same lie over and over again, it will it will resonate with people. And when they accuse Osama bin Laden of uh, of, of 9/11, it's, it's so it's so funny, it's so ridiculous. Anyone who knows the history of 9/11 knows Osama bin Laden had nothing to do with 9/11. In fact, the uh, the the re- descendants of those people of 9/11 who are suing the U.S. government for disclosure, uh, they want information pertaining to you know the, the Saudis. Uh, and in Zionists who would assist the U.S. in terms of bringing down those buildings, they want the information made public. Uh, Biden said he will look at it, but the reality is Biden is not going to release that information because he already knows you know, the reality is that uh, some of it has nothing to do in terms of 9-11. Uh, you know, and also, most people are not even aware that these lawsuits against you know, some sort of officials, they use their names, some sort of citizens are suing because, uh, because of Western press use their names, you know, um, to, to justify uh, coverage, concealing the fact that uh, 9-11 had nothing to do, had nothing to do uh, uh, with Osama bin Laden. But in any event, uh, I'm going to close with this, Brother Africa. I know you said two or three minutes, and I'll try to make this brief. Uh, one of the things I, I think is important that people go back, you know, and look at in terms of the history in terms of, in terms of 9-11. Uh, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is in terms of the erratic flight path for the planes that struck the, uh, struck the Pentagon. And what was ironic about that is because the plane that's supposed to come down the East Coast could have hit the, hit the Pentagon directly. It went around and swerved around to hit the east side of the Pentagon. So that in itself didn't make much sense. Uh, also, uh, they, they say that uh, the plane in, in the fields of, of Pittsburgh, I presume it was, if I remember correctly, they say that it was, it was brought down by, you know, people fighting with the hijackers on the plane. They proceeded to name the hijackers on a particular plane. 
But damn, if you know the hijackers are going to pick a plane, you know, then why weren't you able to intervene? And more importantly, Brother Africa, when when it, when it comes to um, you know jet scrambling, you know, normally in in in, 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 in you know under, under U.S. law or uh, aviation law, when anything any any plane that flies toward the United States that doesn't fail to identify itself, jets are automatically scrambled to intercept it. Well, the nearest the nearest place to 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 the, to the Pentagon happened. Uh, well, nearest place to the Pentagon, uh, certainly the nearest place to the World Series Center was Anderson Air Force Base in in, uh, in Maryland. So the mere fact that no jets were scrambled, even though it, even though in, in order for the planes to penetrate American airspace, it has to identify itself. If it doesn't identify itself, it has to enter. The planes have to they have to launch the planes to check out what's going on. The mere fact that it didn't happen. We should understand two things. Well, one thing actually. There's only two people that can stop those planes from scrambling: the the the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the President himself. Those are the only two people that can stop those planes from scrambling. It's automatic. If any plane doesn't identify itself, those planes automatically scramble to find out what's going on. The mere fact that this plane was able to circumvent U.S. airspace and just come right on in and, and strike the World Trade Center, then strike uh, the Pentagon, is, is highly is very questionable. Also. I, I, I think that one of the things, and I'm close to this brother Africa, when you talk about the destruction of the World Trade Center, and I'm not going to go into the um, in terms of the ins and outs in terms of that, people can research that for themselves. But one of the things that's interesting, the building number seven, which wasn't hit by the plane, also went down. Now, nobody can yet to explain how the building, this autonomous building, this independent building, what made it go down. None of the buildings collided with it, none of the buildings fell on top of it, it came down on its own. Just like the tall, two tall buildings, two, two, two towers imploded, building number seven also imploded. And the mere fact that nobody has yet to explain how that was possible speaks values in terms of cover-up. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, this bullshit about, you know, um, 9-11 with Osama bin Laden and people repeating that, it just makes you say that people just don't read. I mean, the information is there. If you want to find out the truth, it's not difficult to, to, to achieve the truth. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, do you got his narratives that they're telling people about 9-11 and associating all of it with being Latin, being the one responsible for it? Talk to me, Brother Moses. Are you there? While we wait for yeah, Brother um, Moses, I think...
men, women, and children lost their lives that day. And that is what we need to remember. And that's what we need to take forward in this changing, changing country. Because if we fail to acknowledge and maintain a memory of what's going on, we are allowing for more chaos and confusion. The reality is true atrocity. I'm not an engineer. I've seen that imagery, and it was the most shocking, profound experience. You know, uh, I, I heard the story of a, of a guy that was a painter. He was going in to do some painting and had to be out of the building by 9 a.m. before it imploded. And there he was on the 127th floor, busy doing some construction, told his wife he was out of there, and then what happened. So it was such an atrocity for our country, for the world. This type of violence is it's, it's against civilians. It's outrageous. So whomever did it and that story, Right now, it seems that it has to stand, but the reality is the people that suffered, we really don't know, and they're being ignored, the thousands of workers and their families and their children. That untold story needs to be documented and told. I think that's essential to uh, our understanding. And, and Brother Keem is right about Afghanistan and some women probably supporting them. But then there are these young women, these young educated women who are now, uh, the young educated women now, uh, 22 years old, 18 years old, 25 years old, their life is before them. And they're used to a tolerant society, and we need to support that and help them go forward. That's the same thing in this country. It's a new day. We see men being held responsible globally for their behavior. We've seen it in the United States, and I hope that we see it elsewhere. And I hope organizations like Pink continue to help women once you teach them to garden and they have food and they're no longer hungry, and they have access to clean water, they have an opportunity for an education and to learn and to do something other than being housewives and domestics and living in poverty. <clears throat> right now, I think of the young women in Texas and, and this day, and they not having the child care, maybe not being able to take off of their job not able to have access to an abortion. I know in D.C. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, if you were on Medicaid and you wanted an abortion, you needed $500 to pay for it because you couldn't get it at one of the public clinics. So this reproductive rights and women's rights is a global issue. Women living below the poverty line is a global issue. It's not just an issue in the United States. But it definitely is a real issue here, food insecurity, uh, uh, housing insecurity, education, a lack of education. But no, in terms of 9-11, the reality is not the hype we're hearing, but the people who lost their lives and the impact it had on their families, and that should be our focus. 
moving forward in a young American where there are so many people that are in their 20s and our children. They right now are going to outnumber us, so we need to think and plan ahead and make sure that they're educated and we build strong hearts and minds where they believe in, in environmental justice and human rights that human rights is just a guarantee that each person everywhere deserves and that we have international worker solidarity on these issues. But really, we got to build the unions here, build uh, health care alliances. We see what just is happening in California, what just happened in Texas, and and this weekend is that big 9-11, 9-11. It's a horrible event. It was a horrible event. I saw the smoke coming from the Pentagon with my eyes that day. I saw for the first and only time I saw men in, like, military uh, equipment on the roof of the White House. It was a shocking, horrifying day in America. And thank God it was just not one day. And there wasn't a battery of these terrorists coming day after day. So we better unite, stand united, and uh, grow strong by educating and supporting our children and supporting the young people of today. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. This is Africa on the Move. You have a listening audience. What we're going to do right now, um, we're going to go to a, a break of rubbish and music. And when we come back after the music, we're going to play you a segment dealing with who control all of your money. We want you to think about this. And after this particular feature is finished, we'll come back tonight with our final thoughts, with our political panel and analysts. This is going to be a two-part series on sports, slavery, and liberation. So we'll see you in a few. This is Africa on the Move. Welcome to Pilgrim and to the Buffalo who once ruled a plain. Like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds, looking for the rain. Looking for the rain. Just like the city that. Stagger on the coastline And a nation That just can't stand much more Like the forest Buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the hills Have been killed Sit away 
Today in this very special video, you're about to find out the answer to the question of who controls all of our money. People today can tell something isn't quite right with our financial system, but they just can't put their finger on it. Some people think it's the failure of government, others think that it's the failure of capitalism itself. This video should clarify a few things. The year is 1694, and England had just suffered through 50 years of war. Exhausted, the English government needed loans to fund their political means. Brainchild of Scottish banker William Patterson, it was decided that a privately owned bank that could issue the money to the government out of thin air was to be the solution. This was the very first modern central banking system in the world. Central banking is more influential than laws, governments and politicians, but strangely not the focus of the general public. Fast forward to the early 20th century and after two failed attempts, a group of bankers wanted to put a central bank in the United States of America. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. We apologize for the audio problems that we have been having recently on this particular segment, which features who controls all our money. We'll try to maybe continue that next week, but in the meantime, we're going to do a score with our program, and we're going to start with our theme tonight, which is sports, slavery, and liberation. We welcome you to call in, share your views with your perspective. I dial in at three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. That was the article we encourage you to give a chance to Google and look up, which is titled "The People Harassing Salome Stevens Over the U.S. Open." Not fair. The racist bully by Maggie Ryan. It's a real interesting article. It's one of the things about sports. You got to recognize in this society and throughout the world, sports is a um, it's a reflection of your everyday life, the everyday life of people who are being. It reflects that society. And a lot of times you, you, you have kids who think that sports is a great equalizer. It's, it's an institution that represents fairness and equality. When when in reality it doesn't. So we're going to talk a little bit about sports, again, in the context of the relationship to slavery, and talk about this question of question liberation. What is the commonality between these particular different um, terms, sport, slavery, and liberation? So right now to our panelists, we're going to watch our folks on this, this particular article on Shalom Stevens, who is a tennis, who is a tennis player, She's a African sister born in America. She plays tennis. And recently at the U.S. Uh, opening, um, September on, on third, she lost in the third round. But she responded to some mail that she received recently after the loss. And she said she had the history of people constantly writing threatening and racist mail um, to her. And this has just been one of the realities that she and others uh, people who are European, uh, non-Europeans have to deal with when they're on these circuit tours. So what is it about the sole issue of this sister, Brother Haki, when you read this article? Why does she have to endure such racist and hateful mail? What is the driving force behind it from your perspective, Brother Haki? 
Yeah, you're breaking up, Brother Africa. Yeah, okay. Hold up for a second. What is your perspective on this whole issue of uh, this sister Salome Stevens? Why is she have to endure such wretched and hostile uh, male considering she only a tennis player and doing what she does best? That's to play tennis as a professional. What's the basis of this from your perspective? Yeah, well, you know, it's I, I got to I got to be honest with you, brother Africa. It's confounding. Cause like, can you hear me, brother Hackey? I hear you. Can you, can you hear me? Okay, we get brother Hackey back. Let's go. Sister Eleanor, Sister Eleanor. Hello, hello, hello. Can you respond to this question of harassment that the sister has been receiving? What do you think is the basis of it, and how should we deal with this whole question? But athletes no longer be athletes, but they have to um, be other things as they continue to try to perform the sports that they have just and perfected uh, most of their lives. That's out of normal. Well, this has been a strange week with the U.S. opening, but this attack on this woman is racist, and she, as an athlete, is subject to uh, greater abuse. It seems to be uh, a national uh uh, threat uh, 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 felt by many Americans against uh, African-American athletes. And all this week now, the two finalists that are going to uh, hit off, they keep calling them non-white women. But the reality is one's 18, one is 19, and uh, I think it's an Asian girl, and I don't know the origin of the other one, but they're very proud, and this woman, Sloane Stevens, a great athlete, is being uh, harassed through the media, and her life literally threatened. Uh, this this is an outrage, and we may need to look at what is legitimate free speech and what is uh, goes beyond that and have some kind of activity that would restrict uh, social media from being such a, a, a form for this type of uh, uh, abuse, uh, the 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 violence. Because in the article they also mention what happens with baseball players, and they they uh, also mentions the player uh, Bukayo uh, Saka and what happened to him and and Michael uh, Rashford. But this young woman spoke up, and she is a revolutionary in that uh, she she spoke up. She talked about the reality of the abuse that she has to suffer, and uh, she is a committed lifetime athlete. When we talk about these young athletes, these people have been uh, engaged in their sports since they were five and seven years old. You just don't wake up a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old in this being so excellent without committing your entire life, your family committing your life uh, and their lives to supporting you in becoming a great black athlete. And uh, people need to be sensitive to the feelings of others, and again, uh, this uh, is a, a form for misogyny, and uh, she talked about the the graphic racist and misogynistic uh, insults that she had to endure because of uh, 
one 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 incident and this is a reality they play they win they continue to practice and they'll live to play another day and be successful so this is just uh an example of uh the national uh tone that we need to fight back during the days uh, with president trump people begin to feel like it was all right to put their racist, sexist views out there and that it, it was just free speech. Well, it's not. It, 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 it's what they, what, what I call what she experienced is a, a hate crime. Now, why it's not being handled as a hate crime, I do not know. And supporting our Asian brothers and sisters, where people were just mentioning that they were Asian and that Asians did this and that, that's not what blacks uh, endure. They endure life threats and all types of racial slurs. It is a hate crime that she experienced, and I think uh, appropriate action needs to be taken. Thanks, Brother Africa. Well, no, that's an excellent point in terms of why law officials not have not been looking into these allegations of harassment and viewing it hate, hate, hate crime. And one reason I suspect is that it's due to how they still see African Africans as 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 a slave or their or the history of enslavement, and they have the right to think they can treat us like that because that's how they still see us. Let's see, I think you have Brother Hakeem or call 8963, 8963, your question comment on the issue of this tennis player. Yes, Brother Hakeem. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, be honest with you, Brother Africa, I'm so much because the whole problem is that, you know, you're talking about sending misogynistic racist literature, I mean, text, you know, to, to a tennis player. Now, Miss, she's a very young lady. I mean, she's very, very young. And, you know, the thing is that, you know, we have very little control in terms of the, the attitudes of people, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, you know, so it seems to me that when you get this kind of hate mail, uh, this kind of misogynistic crap, it seems to me your best, the best thing you can do in our estimation is to just ignore it. Because I think it's pervasive, Brother Africa. It's pervasive. I think a certain amount of uh, expectations when it comes to African athletes. In other words, you know, uh, for individuals who may, may bet uh, on African athletes, there's an expectation that they're going to win, uh, which is racist to its core, but there's, there's an expectation. And if they don't win, then it, it results in, you know, you know, all type of, uh, you know, racist and misogynistic talk, you know, just as an attempt to demean that, that particular person. So I think that, you know, it seems to me, you know, uh, the best thing you can do when it comes to, to people like that is simply to, to ignore it because the bottom line is that it's pervasive. It's everywhere. Where you're going to go where it's not unless you're going to go to, to a country where it's predominantly people of color, you know, uh, then you have a different kind of I – mean, you may have encompassed different kinds of prejudices, but you won't have maybe necessarily the racism, but you may have the bigotry. Uh, so I think that in, in situations like that, Brother Africa, you know, it's, it's, it's really indefensible. There's nothing you can really say. To justify someone berating an athlete, you know, it's, it's it's absurd. I mean, obviously you don't have much of a life when you start berating athletes. I mean, it takes time to actually write athletes about you know their performance on the, on the court. I mean, to me, it doesn't make any sense at all. So it seems to me that your best offense, or or certainly your your best defense, 
is to simply ignore that kind of that kind of nonsense. Okay, let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. What's your take on this article, Brother Moses? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I agree with Haki. Basically, that racism is here. Uh, we have to recognize it's here, and, uh, and 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 deal with it accordingly. We we shouldn't be reacting to things. We should be responding to things because we should be a clear, sober-minded um, person that understands what society is about. And uh, uh, unfortunately, not everybody is a political scientist, though. And so we, you know, we have different levels of ignorance, but ignorance can be overcome by education and and uh, and, uh, and information. And so, you know, but we, you know, like you know, we we're in a struggle. We're in a a, a racist world, and we have to accept that struggle and engage in that struggle daily. Um, there's there's no getting around it. Uh, and so, you know, I. To think that the things are just gonna go away or not not be here is, is unrealistic, and so we have to engage in the struggle as black people fighting racism. You know, the, who taught us to hate ourselves? You know, that's that's the name of the game. Uh, we have to, we can't internalize what the what the oppressor tries to put on us. We have to we have to have our own independent understanding of who we are, where we are, and what we are about. And and know and know that no one can uh, define us but us. Nobody knows our heart, knows our mind, knows our motivations but us. And so we have to remain true to ourselves and uh, and continue to fight the good fight. Thank you. Thank you, brother Moses. This is Africa on the move. This is brother Africa. What we're going to do is take a quick break, and when we come back. We can come back with our final thoughts. This is the first part of a two-part series called Sports, Slavery, and Liberation. We'll be right back. Africa, 
Well, first of all, I like to say, you know, we have to get a proper perspective of who we are and where we are and what we what's going on around us. We're in the United States of America, the the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the earth, the most unjust country on this planet, basically given the power that it has and its ability to police the world into its likings and its interests. And so we have to understand that when Osama, Osama bin Laden was was one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. But the U.S. and the, the bases and the, the wars that we carried out in Afghanistan and Iraq and the, what the shock and awe and all the, all the atrocities we did to this country, you know, we have to understand why there would be a Osama bin Laden would come to the fore because – Somebody has to has to fight back. Somebody has to say enough is enough. And uh, and so we if we don't understand that about about that that nine eleven and the what what the motivations of the people are in terms of justice, no justice, no peace. We we have to understand that the U.S. is a problem, and uh, and the failure to understand that is to lead to us criticizing other people in other countries and uh, never getting the, never getting to a, the moat in our own eye. And so, you know, I think it's important that we recognize the U.S. as a problem. And I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next we'll go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. Well, um, again, uh, I just want to say that I stand in solidarity with our youth, and I wouldn't say to Stone Sloan Stevens, just chin up and take it. I would say get your people and make sure that they filter out this racist, abusive anger, that I stand in solidarity with her and young women around the world, uh, that they should be able to live in peace and not be victimized by abuse and anger and misogyny and racism. And I will build, stand in unity and build a garden of love around people like Sloan Stevenson, like the wonderful women of Cuba, like the young women in their 20s and teens in Afghanistan and wherever they stand. The old can do what they wish. But now it's time for us to support a new world where there is no, zero tolerance, zero tolerance for the abuse of African Americans. No one should say, well, you need to take it and this is America. No, it's not. We don't need to take it, and we have to stand in solidarity with these young, this young woman and women like her, whether it's, it's Gabby. Gabby spoke out. She was a winner, numerous medals, and she stood up and talked about mental behavioral health. Gabby Douglas did that. People with behavioral health issues need to recognize it's okay to have a sick brain, and we don't need to abuse people for having it. Gabby spoke out. Gabby took time to address her issues and came back to win a bronze medal. Now, as a, for a Sloan Stevenson, we do not need to destroy her uh, and tell her that the abuse that she suffered 
2,000 abusive messages is the way it will go in professional sports. We need to look up and say why, as you said, Brother Africa, are African Americans allowed to be slaughtered in the street, to be abused as if we are still slaves. We need to transcend that behavior. You know, the you see what women are doing and the lack of tolerance they have? You know, they're saying, you touched my hand inappropriately. You touched my hair. Well, this is a new day. And we say, yes, I say I stand in solidarity with Sloane Stevenson. She's a young woman. She's like a child. As I said in my comments, these people started five and seven years old to get to where they are at 18, 19, and to be world-class champions. You know, we think of Gabby Douglas as old, and she's 25. These are our youth. We must put a wall of love, a garden of love around them, that the people stand in solidarity, and we will not accept racist, sexist dogma of any type. And we need to criticize ourselves and say that if we think it's all right and you're busy being a sexist, you're busy being a misogynist person, you need to say, look, I got to stop. I may have been doing this all my life, but I need to see women. I need to start respecting myself by respecting others. And we will not tolerate misogyny or racism any longer. It's a new day. Today is September 12th, one day after 9-11. This is a new America, an America where we're going to say down with the brutalization of persons who are the descendants of enslaved people, the builders of this great nation. So many people are enjoying the benefits of this great nation. Well, respect the indigenous people and respect the enslaved people that were the builders of this nation. We're riding on the streets that they built. We're driving on the highways that they built. We're living in the buildings that they built. The White House wasn't built by someone who arrived here in 1952. Hell no, it was built by enslaved people. Malcolm X said they bought us here for a job. The problem is how are we going to get paid? So reparations, and we're going to stand up today and make sure that we do not accept abuse of, of young women like Miss Stevenson and that we say this is an injustice, it's racist, it demonstrates the inequity of how laws are enforced in America. This is an obvious, this was a hate crime as there's ever been one. 2,000 messages to one young African-American woman. This is ridiculous. And I say, no, it stops today for allowing me to participate in this fabulous forum. Thank you, Sister. Yeah, I may be an old person, Brother Africa, but us old people need to think about the youth. When Brother Robert speaks, he's speaking from years of experience. Think about the youth. Think about the 18, 19, 20-year-olds. You know, we need to protect them. We need to tell them that we won't tolerate racism. We won't tolerate them being treated as third-class citizens because they may be descendants of enslaved people or they may be indigenous people. I remember 
when in Virginia a Native American person in the 20th century couldn't call themselves a Native American if they wanted a birth certificate in the state of Virginia. Well, this is a new day. People can recognize their heritage and stand up proud, and we're going to stand together, revolutionary people, in solidarity with one another. This is the time. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. The uh, next we have with us, Brother Haki. No thoughts for the night, Brother Haki. Yeah, well, my my position is a bit more pragmatic. I don't necessarily entail this notion that uh, love is going to save the day. Uh, you know, as 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 positive as love can be, the reality is that we 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 have we have to confront a hard cold system uh, that is uh, indifference to love. And so to me, it seems to me a certain amount of strategizing uh, has to take place in terms of overcoming uh, the problems that we're, that we're, that we're witnessing. Uh, it seems to me, you know, that uh, if we want to protect our young people, then what we have to do, we have to create the institutions to get young people to start thinking. I, I spoke to a young lady the other day and uh, about the state of the economy and when she thought about it, and she didn't. She was 23 and she didn't think anything about it. I'm saying, but do you do you feel somewhat uh, disenchanted when you have to, you know, your jobs will last two or three months and then you're off to the next job and then it's the very the pay is relatively slow. How do you feel about that? She shrugged her shoulders like, oh well, that's just the way it is. So for her, the reality is that that's just the way it is. So she's been born into a life in which that that kind that way of life is natural to her, and so she don't see a problem. But it does have repercussions down the road because one of the things that even though we when we talk about the gig economy, the bottom line is that when we factor in inflation and we talk about the cost of living increasing, uh, the ability in terms of sustaining yourself becomes much more problematic. So if you're a person working relatively low wages. And but the cost of living keep going up, up and up. But specifically, you know, food and shelter and housing. As those prices increase, you're gonna find yourself in very dire straits. And the question is, what are your response to that? So it seems to me at this point we have to begin thinking about the inevitable in terms of living in the context of a capitalist system, which which is uh, has no understanding in terms of what is right uh, for the capitalist system. Everything is expedient. And so to the extent that we talk about expediency, then capitalists talk about. Uh, you know, anything to make money, and that's all that matters. Uh, so you have a situation where in this country, and I think this is important people understand this, but when we talk about wealth, wealth in this country, keep in mind that 97% of this wealth that we talk about doesn't actually exist. It exists on computers. Only 3% of the wealth actually exists in terms of hardcore dollars. And so when we talk about that reality, then essentially what we're saying is that there are people who are controlling the destination of an entire nation. So those powerful people define who eats, who has shelter, who's educated, who doesn't have shelter, who doesn't eat, who doesn't get educated. And given that, given that reality, then we have to strategize uh, to simple, simply elevate this question of love, you know, in order to bring about some redress in terms of society. I think it's, uh, it's, going, to, it's going to get a lot of people killed. I mean, it's just the bottom line. Uh, so we have to have organization. We need institutions to, 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 to understand, first and foremost, what it is that we're up against, to create those kind of structures to fight back, to resist against those structures, to create those kind of things that our young people need in terms of self-empowerment to be able to take the fight into the future. Because keep in mind, this fight is protracted. It's not going, it's not going to be a short-term fight. These people in positions of power got no intentions whatsoever of giving up the fight. 
They're empowering their children. They're making sure their children are educated. Their children can have access to vast sums of wealth when the time they pass on, when they transition. Well, our children, that's not the reality for most of children in America. That's not the reality. So it's a protracted struggle. And so we have to, again, young people have to understand, you know, the, the nature of the beast. If they don't understand the nature of the beast, then they become more pliable. They become more susceptible to manipulation and propaganda, which is precisely what they're doing. And I'm going to say this last thing. Well, one thing, you know, I, I think about, when you think about something like critical race theory, something that's simple, all it's done is say, look at the statistics, looking at the, 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 the methodologies in terms of how society is organized, uh, looking at in terms of um, the, the, you know, the, the, the disparity in terms of wealth that exists in society. By looking at these things from a mathematical point of view and explaining the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the potency of these kinds of issues, uh, seems to me it's a very good thing because in order to move forward, then you have to understand what the issues are. Critical race theory allows us the opportunity to see clearly what, what, what the issues are and to address those to move forward. But people's position of power got no desire in terms of making sure people understand that reality. In that context, they're destroying, they're destroying history across the board. So not only are they attacking critical race theory, they're also crack, they're cracking down on, 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 on universities. They're making sure universities only teach certain subjects. Uh, they're cracking down on high schools, making sure kids don't have access to certain information. So clearly when we talk about war, uh, we got to be very, very clear. The people in position of power are practicing war. While we talk about love, they're talking about war. So we have to make up. We have to make some decisions in terms of which way we're going to proceed. We're going to be either be pragmatic about it, or we simply pay the price from our from from being uh, uh, from from lack of of, of of pragmatism. So it seems to me that we we have to have the institutions. We need them. We got to have them. And as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to you know unravel the matrix, because if we don't unravel the matrix, the bottom line is that this this system ain't going anywhere, and the number of deaths that precipitate. Uh, you know, directly from the policies that are implemented by people in positions of power, is only become more and more harsh. So we got to understand the nature of the beast, and if we and if we don't understand the nature of the beast, then we're in big, big trouble. And having said that, brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you for saying, brother Haki, to our listening audience, our panelists, friends, supporters. We'd like to thank you for allowing us to come to your home this evening, where we can speak truth to the powerless and powerful. We also, again, like to send our condolences to the family, members, and children of Will Augusta Kayak, better known as Chief Billy Red Wing Kayak. Uh, he made a transition on the 6th of September, 2021. They'll have an um, opening ceremony tomorrow, September 13th, from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Kayak Territory, 8105, Zachary Road, Port. Tobacco Mellon, 20677. And we also like to remind you again, if you're interested in going on the Freedom Ride Tour to Cuba with us, make sure you contact the African Awareness Association at the email African Awareness Association to number two at gmail.com all together. So on that note, this is the first part of a two-part series, Sports, Slavery, and Liberation. We'll be back next week. We hope that we can come to you on next week, speak truth to power, and we'll let you mind you. Let's always strive to go forward our backwards novel. This has been Africa on the Moon. If we had all the money in the world, what would we do with it? <laughs>
chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, last through my journey. Yeah. When we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, hello Reno. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains do not break the spirit. 
did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. For more than 30 years, the Piscataway Indian Nation singers and dancers have been touring the world in an attempt to break stereotypes and educate others about the history of their people. Their leader and narrator, Mark Tyak, is the son of a 28th generation Piscataway chieftain. When his father passes, it will be his turn to lead his tribe. During a ceremonial war dance, James Edwards displays the American Indian virtue of mercy by not striking his target. Steve Conway demonstrated what is called a men's grass dance. These were often used by American Indians to flatten grassy plains before making camp. Here Eagle Boy Co. leads sophomore elementary education and engineering major Melissa Zichkowski in a rabbit dance, traditionally done by couples. Conway took the stage yet again to demonstrate a ring dance, an age-old tradition of forming shapes with rings, things like eagles, turtles, and the world. Co. performed an eagle dance, while Tayek explained the origin of the term Indian as it is used to describe Native Americans. The term came from Columbus, who, after being taken in by natives, affectionately dubbed them Indios, Spanish for in God.
father. Yes, he's my son. I can talk to him because he understands everything I go through and everything I am. He's my support system. I can't live without him. The best thing since life's bread is his kiss, his hug, his lips. Touch. And I just want the whole world to know about my black brother. I love you and I'll never try to hurt you. I want you to know that I'm here for you forever too. Cause you're my black brother, strong brother. And there is no one above you. I want you If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer. 
to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die we've got to take a stand for freedom take a stand for truth take a stand for justice that's what we've got to do cuz palestine, palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that palestine, palestine. needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, Let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mosaddegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame when they drop the bombs out of them planes? Using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face. He said, fuck it, I'll do it. A master of the skies, expert at telling lies. Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. Should have known he was trained in Chicago. Word the chairman, Fred and Mark Clark. What they do in the dark will come out in the light. Like a WikiLeaks site. So I guess Nkrumah was right. Who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism, I ain't kidding. In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. 
trip was getting bomb, Obama didn't say shit. O-B-A-M-A, you ain't fooling everyone, I see the games you play. You VIP at the B-I-C, and we know that's the code name for CIA. Hey, hey, the same way your cameras are watching us, we're watching you. Think we're easy to control, you ain't got a clue. Revolution's on the way, let's see what you're gonna do. You're gonna send the troops, you're gonna drop the news. See, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. He's sitting in the White House, so who cares if he's black? And why is there soldiers still out there in the rack? Natural resources ain't yours, it's theirs, give it back. You're just another puppet, but I'm not surprised. Look at Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. They didn't change shit, house niggas fresh off the slave ship. You all burn in hell, even Michelle will bomb nation. Was getting bomb, Obama didn't say shit. What's the bigger threat from Osama or from Obama? Military bases from Chagos to Okinawa. I say things that other rappers won't say. Cause my mind never closed like Guantanamo Bay. Hope you didn't feel the statue or tattoo your arm. Cause the drones are still flying over Pakistan. Did he defend the war? No. He extended more. Even had the time to attempt the crew in Ecuador. Morales and Chavez. The states are on the hunt for ya. Military now stationed on bases in Colombia. Take a trip to the past and tell them I was right. Ask Ali Abu Neymar and Jeremiah Wright. Jones over Pakistan, Yemen and Libya. Is Obama the bomber getting ready for Syria? First black president, the masses were hungry. But the same president just bombed an African country like... The Jonas Brothers are here. They're out there somewhere. Sasha and Malia are huge fans. But uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you. Predator drones. You will never see it coming. You think I'm joking? Talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery. Supremacy and go the extent to keep their history alive. alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, alive. 
Who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler. Trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence but don't let it steal our faith. Hide behind doors but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause Simone had Twitter and Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man lay dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I'm march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. You're in a million. You build up your regime. 
me talk about just me You're in a relax Handing down injustice We gonna fight, 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 fight Yeah, the far time Brothers got to fight Can't see 
educated, evaluated, thoughts of the past have faded. The only thing left is the memories of our belated. And I hate it when someone dies to get all hurt up for a silly gold chain. Chump word up. It doesn't make you a big man. And to one ain't going to dish your brother man. And you don't know that's part of the plan. Why? Cause rap music is in full demand. Understand? Right, 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 right
Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we've come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I said, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> so we must not be confused here socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal no system does the person who betrays themselves goes to the mud but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on if a system fell because of betrayal Christianity would have been finished with Judas at least Judas had the dignity to hang himself yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system, and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say... Please summarize that we might have... No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off.
That's what I thought I did. I was watching. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm irresponsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go back home. Got my clock right here. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words: Black Power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one: Pan Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs>
Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. If your people are being raped and you're looking at television enjoying your time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides itself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> so my mama. I know what I'm talking about. She'd be a little skewed, but because Cuba's a poor country, big bad. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. But in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> so they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they call me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whip them on half a bowl. <laughs> <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out you always planning, look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. situation. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education. Not a penny. When you look at poor Cuba and see its concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire them up. Shoot them all. With our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, 
They seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masters must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, dedicating, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor, we're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down, we're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. 
once he makes that decision and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life you have a revolutionary thus a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system he's someone who seeks to replace it I'm a revolutionary I'm not a reformist I want the American system destroyed it must be destroyed and has to be replaced has to be replaced there's no ifs ands or buts about it again I'm not calling for revolution I see it coming and I want to be part of the solution I don't want to be part of the problem I've been the victim too long so I want to be part of the solution I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution all of us must opt for revolution now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten, and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come. Conscious, becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist Association. A convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, 
there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust, the people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who have been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers. Yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process.